Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Mental health issues are alarmingly high within emergency services. Research conducted by Beyond Blue identifies self-stigma as being of significant concern. In fact, they did a survey of over 21,000 emergency services personnel where they reported staggering statistics around participants diagnosed with a mental health issue feeling shame about their mental well-being with two-thirds of diagnosed participants admitting they have avoided telling anyone about their mental health issues. Despite indicative testing suggesting the presence of a mental health issue, many respondents were also unable to identify this within themselves. Matt Newlands is a husband and father with 10 years service with South Australia Police. Having been diagnosed with PTSD and depression in 2015, he fought a personal battle with suicidal thoughts. The personal refusal of his diagnosis resulted in the destruction of his personal life and the end of a policing career in a very dramatic circumstance. Enveloped in an identity crisis, Matt found his way through the darkness with support of family and close friends. He now lives a positive and hopeful life after the job as a counsellor, peer support group facilitator with the Road Home Wellbeing Program and Community Ambassador for RUOK. Tune in with Matt as he takes us through his personal experience and discover how the element of self-awareness is crucial in the journey of treatment and recovery. All right, welcome Matt to the podcast and thanks very much for coming and sharing your time and your story with us. Thank you very much for having me. That's a pleasure. Matt, do you just want to give us a bit of a background just so we can get some sort of context to this amazing stuff that you've been doing lately? But if you just want to give us a background where, the, where your journey started in your professional career, I guess, uh, let's start with that. Sure. So I joined South Australia Police in 2006, a bit of a fresh-faced 20-year-old looking for some purpose and identity. I did 10 years with South Australia Police and, uh, yeah, ultimately I separated from them in 2016 as a result of some mental health issues. So, 2000 and, uh, so, so 2006 you started with the police force at 20 years old. What, were you doing university? Were you just uh, out doing a job before then? What, what made you want to get into the police? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I wanted to join the police since I was four years old. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I, was, I think there's probably not too many young kids who don't have some sort of dream or aspiration to pick Mate, one of those hero titles. 100%. But... I had the same dream. Yeah. Uh, I had the same dream. And I'm sure, like you said, most other kids do. But yeah, yeah so since four years of, of age, you yeah. wanted to be a policeman. Yeah, so since four, uh, maintained that, that dream and desire even through teenage years, through high school. In South Australia, the uh, selection process, there is no university requirement to go into SAPOL. 
Uh, so I got into hospitality and also into some sales roles, which I think, again, are pretty stock standard for yeah. customer experience. I was looking for opportunities just to deal with, like just interact with people, because I thought that that would really benefit the role in the police. And yeah, successful in my application to the police at 20. And, uh, and where about did you go and do your, uh, your induction for the police? Sure, so uh, in South Australia, uh, they've got the police academy in around Taparoo. Uh, they've since got a new police academy in the last few years, but I've trained in the old academy. From there, I graduated and went Metropolitan Station initially under the sort of watchful guise of a field shooter, and then got posted to a country location after about six months and did two years out in a sort of more country posting. So, so I know where the, the journey, uh, like where we're going with the, with the mental health side of things, um, and the listeners will get to that in a second, but with the induction process uh, and the training that they do back then, say 15 years ago or so, mm-hmm. did you feel like, was there an aspect of it that was about the, the psychological state, the, the safety, the mental health of, of, um, of police officers? If there was, I certainly don't recall it. Uh, I think the closest we got was a psychology component to some of the the study. But I think that more consisted around a bit of a debrief when we were considering the possibility of working with uh, dead people. And I think that it was more the impacts of like that more significant uh, trauma that might occur, but certainly not around uh, signs, things to watch for, you know, even the possible impacts of some of the other ongoing trauma as well, vicarious trauma of hearing other people's stories, taking statements, etc. Uh, yeah, certainly not that I can remember if there, if there was anything at all. And, and we'll, I guess we'll delve on where that's come since then uh, later on. But um, but tell me where uh, you met your, your wife, Alira, was it? Yeah, Alira. So I was... I actually went to school with Alira. Oh, yeah. wow. Primary school, high school? Uh, high school. Cool. High school, yeah. We were friends through high school, and then we started a relationship after, after school, um, which was really cool. And so I knew her before I joined the police. So she's, I think, really able to offer some quite valuable insight into what, I guess, how I changed as well, even stepping into that role. But then certainly she's got a pretty remarkable story to tell around the effects of the, the mental health diagnosis as well. And that's such an important area, not only for the people that are in the front line, you know, in the police or ambulance, fire, fire service or, or the defence even, but, but also it's such a big role, isn't it, that the, that the partners, that the carers, that, the, that your, um, your, your, your partner plays in that supportive role. Absolutely. I, I think that that is still, even now, massively underrated. It, it, an individual doesn't join an emergency service uh, or the military and that sort of stuff for the first responder roles. It's not, it is a family approach. It's you know, my brothers, my parents, uh, my close friends. Those people are, have bought into my dream as well and my career aspirations because of the things as simple as the shifts that we have to work. But also the more significant things like the, the danger that we're often exposed to, that does have a very real impact on home life. Uh, mm. You know, where, where is he? Is he safe? If I'm mm. unable to contact family because mm. I'm on a job and I'm past my, ro- my rostered um, hours, you know, there's all of those things to consider. So it really is a family commitment to the role. 
And so if we talk about a bit of your role or your time with the police force, how, how did you find that? Was it everything you dreamed of? Was it, was it your dream job? I mean, how, tell, me about, tell me about that experience. Absolutely. I think even, even now I get excited thinking about my role in the police. Um, you know, there's often times now that I, I wish I was still in the police. I question how my mental health would be if that was the case, given uh, my diagnosis later in my career. But the policing was, was pretty well everything that I wanted it to be. The camaraderie that came with the role, the sense of value and purpose. I took a real sense of identity away from being able to be of service in, in that role. Um, some of those ideas were challenged more so nearing the end of my career, but yeah, absolutely, policing was was significant. It really, really, really was. So I was really proud of my service. And so, th- during your ten years of service, obviously, you've um, you know you achieved a lot in your role. What what's some of the things you're most proud of? Wow, yeah, there's um, I think what I'm most proud of is the the friendships and the relationships I formed with colleagues at the time but they've become lifelong friends and brothers there, there really was for me anyway a sense of family associated with the people that I worked with um, from a more sort of resume stacking thing uh, I was a recipient of the leadership award through the academy I was really proud of that being one of the youngest participants of our course to take that award uh, I got myself qualified to the rank of senior sergeant uh, through internal and external studies that were required I was successful in um, winning a position at this, we call a state tactical response group, uh, which is focused primarily on saturation style policing, a lot of public order management, uh, low level drugs and bikies, parole warrants, that sort of thing. Uh, and that was a, at the time it was a highly sought after role and I was, I was really proud again of, of winning that position. I had extensive leadership roles as well, despite being quite junior in rank. I was recognised for my ability to, to lead teams and so I was really proud of that too. So, yeah, I was really, really proud of my, all of my 10 years. And so there's obviously, I mean, that's remarkable. As, uh, I mean, all those things you've just listed, I mean, and a credit to you for your service. What, what about the dark side of, of the job? Like, tell, tell us about how, um, you know, a 20-year-old uh, really keen on, on fulfilling his lifelong dream as a police officer and the role and the importance that played in the community, but then uh, getting to the point of 2015 where you were diagnosed with PTSD and depression. Tell me how it sort of came uh, to, to that 2015 time in your life. Like, was it a trigger of events that were happening throughout the career. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, sure. I think it, there's certainly a catalyst incident which resulted in the diagnosis or certainly what a psychologist tells me was a, was a catalyst. I do still believe, though, that it is the ongoing exposure to trauma. When I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, I refused the diagnosis initially because I, I felt as though that was a diagnosis reserved for soldiers. Um, I, I had not been to war, so I didn't feel as though that that was relevant to me. The problem with that, though, is it could be argued that we go to war every day. And the other issue that they've got is when talking to particularly first responders who are witnessing ongoing trauma, is it's hard to identify which event needs to be unpacked and explored most. So it really is this idea of there's, there's so much ongoing trauma that has to be worked through. That was in the lead up. In 2013, I had a, a good friend of mine who took his life. He, he was a, also a colleague. Um, I'd only seen him a few hours beforehand. And then, yeah, a couple of hours later was called to his house 
where unfortunately he had taken his own life. So He was off duty at the time. Yeah, correct. He was off duty at the time. He, clearly he was battling his own demons as well. And he had a lot of, he had, did have some close support in place as well. Um, unfortunately, the, it still resulted in him taking his own life, which is, which is such a tragedy. I think for me, the diagnosis was really as a result of just not coping with that healthily and effectively. And your friend uh, that, that took his own life, were there events and did, was it as a friend of his, was it obvious or was, it, was there signs to you that something was troubling him um, and, and was there something in place that was trying to help him? Yeah, so I, I think for me, there's, he had other people in his life that were a lot closer to him and I think this is also one of the contributing factors is I felt as though there were better friends of his that this would have impacted far worse therefore it wasn't necessarily mine to carry and to to own i had spoken with him on a number of occasions where he had indicated that he was struggling with a few things he had like i said a number of closer friends who i believe were far more aware but i think that again plays into a lot of the the stigma and and one of the strong messages that i talk about is there is this still a reluctance to step forward and to say you are struggling for that fear of perceived weakness particularly in those roles so yeah and so so from then then from your uh, affiliation uh, with your friend uh, taking his own life at that point in 2013 was it then a journey for you that you went on that sort of was I think you said that you experienced your being more aggressive uh, and probably your wife probably sensed it but uh, was it unbeknownst to you at the time or yeah, and, and that's, that's a really good point you raised. I think because uh, mental health literacy, certainly in emergency uh, services, is, it, it's shown is really low. I didn't cope well. I stopped um, engaging a lot with a lot of friends and family. I started to isolate myself. I didn't necessarily know why I was doing that, but that was what was occurring. I was drinking a lot more and often using that as a way of trying to get myself to sleep. So my sleep itself was becoming far more broken. So again, physically, I was becoming quite depleted of energy. So therefore, I would give as much as I possibly could at work, leaving very little at home. So I think as far as my home life became, for me anyway, uh, I didn't necessarily step into a place of uh, aggression or anything directed at, at my wife or my daughter, but I became quite robotic I was completely emotionless I had no energy or time for any of the decisions that were required so my wife was really required to, to step up and she just had to run run the family I guess and, and do her best but still not really knowing how best to navigate what was going on for me as well and, and so what what sort of got you to the point where you said well you know hey there's something not right with me what 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 did the, what what got you to that point and what did you do? Yeah, so I actually recall it was, it was January two thousand and fifteen, and it was around the time that I had just been selected for this position at uh, State Tac, and my daughter at the time was about four years old, and she, I don't even recall what it was that she had done, but I had told her to go to her room to clean something I don't know, but she had backed away from me in tears, saying she was scared of me. And I remember at the time, like the worst thing for me is that, um, you know, I was I didn't yell at her, I didn't, you know, sort of threaten any violence or anything towards her. But 
the worst thing for me is that I, I didn't seem to care. I, was, I had an ability, and I'm, I think many emergency services personnel can uh, relate to, is an ability to give an instruction in a particular way, tone of voice, body language, that sort of stuff, that uh, you would be fully aware that there was a consequence coming if you didn't comply with the direction. And I think that I was just bringing that home. So for a, for a crook on the streets, that might you know, keep me safe. But when I'm talking to my four-year-old, you know, yeah. that's just sending a real clear message that dad's a potential threat. And so she went to my wife in tears saying she was scared. And, and like I was saying, I, the biggest thing for me around that was that I, I didn't really feel any concern or care about that, which is why I thought I, there was something wrong. And I, I went to the doctor and said, there's something wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but I know that like, there's something. And that's, this is why you're still in service. You're still, um, you're still out there in, as a police officer. At that no, point? Uh, yeah, I was, I was still in the police at that time, yeah. absolutely. And I think, again, it posed this, um, you know, that refusal of diagnosis around that time. I had also stepped into a new role, which was highly sought after and was at the time considered a bit more of like a specialist position. I felt that I had to prove my worth, that the stigma around that perception of weakness, if I was to say, actually, I'm not coping so well. So I didn't didn't tell, like no one in the police knew that I'd, I'd been diagnosed at that stage. Um, and they didn't know until things came to a real crashing halt, like months later. So you went and saw your doctor, was it your GP? Yeah, I just went to the GP and said that something was wrong with me. They asked a few questions, ran, uh, I think, which are relatively standard questions now as well, around exposure to trauma and also questions relating to depression. And the results of those questions, then I had a referral to a, a psychologist under it with a mental health care plan. And was this in Adelaide? Yeah, yeah, okay. in Adelaide, yeah. And what was your experience like with the psychologist? The psychologist was actually really good. He, he was very much evidence-based and for a police officer, that suited me, in many ways it suited me well. He told me that I had symptoms of ex- po- uh, extreme post-traumatic stress and depression. And I think that was also critical wording that he used symptoms. Now, obviously there was a lot of time there that I still refused that diagnosis and he was running different tests almost to show me that my brain wasn't working the same way that it should, that my heart rate was out of whack and, and a number of different things. So he was trying to formulate a case or prove to me that I was not working the way that other humans might work to make sort of smart decisions and, um, and consider consequences because at that time I really was just acting without consequence. I felt um, that there, I was only, I was only the, the bad news to someone if they did stepped out of place, then I would step in and I'd just be the consequence. So with that carried this real sense of darkness. It didn't really matter what I did each day. So therefore I just, I guess, did what I wanted without real care or concern. And tell me about the self-stigma part of it, because obviously this was a big, a big part of, mm. you know, your internal battle, which was, you know, the refusal um, of, of um, yeah, of being labelled, I guess, mm-hmm. with with those sorts of things. So tell me about how you overcome that, and and what you want to be seen, I guess, for today for people yeah. going through this similar thing about self stigma. I think because so for me it, to overcome self stigma, I didn't until it was almost too late. I had already got to the point, and and I'm quite open in my in my story when I share it that I had given Saypol many reasons to sack me, um, in that. Uh, 
that sort of started in August of 2015, that process. Um, the, the change that occurred really was around January of 2016 when I realised that I didn't want to keep being a victim to this way of thinking that I, I found that I was being subjected to. So I tried to, tried to change that and reprogram that. So amongst other things, you know, watching lots of different you know, motivational videos and reading different books, the, the big thing for me was actually just talking to people about my story, was taking ownership of what it was that, that I had done, uh, understanding that I was unwell. Um, my diagnosis, it didn't offer me an excuse for all of my poor behaviour through 2015, but it offered me an explanation as to why it was that I could act and think you know, behave in such a way that was so far out of character normally for me, uh, it offered an explanation for that. And when you say tell people, what, what do you mean by that? You mean telling friends, family? Do you mean your work colleagues? Did you mean, um, do you mean going and standing up in front of people? I mean, what, what does that mean? Sam, it means like all of that. So okay. I'll talk to anybody who will, who will listen. And it's from a real place of honesty and transparency and authenticity. There's no, I say now, there's no question that people can can ask there's no uh, statement that they could make towards me good bad or different Um, it really is just about trying to talk openly about what is going on for me and for for us all just from an emotional and a mental standpoint because I say mental health is it's not always so evident you can't see what's going on so Mm. you know the the words are the way of externalizing a lot of that inner feeling Uh, so for me now it's, it's one-on-one conversations with people. I'd still have a number of friends who are in the police. I've got people in the police that I don't really know that I speak to. And I use my story as a place to start, because to, I know that vulnerability breeds vulnerability. Um, I take the same approach with my family and friends outside of the services. I've been invited back to speak with SAPOL as well, despite them I, uh, you know, terminating my appointment was the official way of putting it. I've been invited back to, to speak with rooms full of South Australia police officers that are still serving. And again, sharing my story and posing questions around identity. Um, you know, what, we're, not just, we're not just police or fireys or ambos. We're, you know, we're actually still... Human beings. Yeah, we're human beings. And we've got a stack of other roles and labels that we can put on ourselves. But ultimately... It comes down to who we are as individuals, like the, those values that we hold true to ourselves and are we acting in those and on those in everything that we do. Um, it's just a much, I found it's just such a far better way of living is to just be openly honest with people. And if I'm having a bad day, just say that. And mm. most people are pretty supportive of that. From what other people have said, the, the, the sense of release and relief once you do this and open up it just takes a weight off the shoulders. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think humans aren't designed for isolation, whether that's you know, a self-inflicted isolation or an external one. Um, and I think that many people have been in instances where they could be in a busy room and still feel completely separated from those around them. Isolation can be a very dangerous place to be. And there's that corny saying of the problem shared is a problem halved and I, I but I do actually think there's a lot of a lot to be said about that because sometimes it just takes a different perspective on the same set of circumstances to realize that there's other options and for me options is, is just another word for control and so when I found that I was in such a place of despair and and hopelessness and helplessness that lack of control ultimately led me to that 
you know, there is no other option out other than to take my own life. Um, so I think that's where sharing what's going on for you can often just be that, like you said, that release of um, what is happening, but then also the potential for perspective as well. And you, you experience suicidal thoughts throughout your PTSD depression. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm now in a role as an RUOK community ambassador and through, through that role and through some of the education through that, um, understanding that the three contributing factors to suicide, the three primary contributing factors are isolation, a sense of being a burden to others and having the means to actually carry out the plan, three pretty um, important parts of that. And for many in emergency services, and certainly in my role in the police, I had all of those things. You know, I, was, I, felt, um, I felt isolated. I certainly felt as if I was a burden on others. And unfortunately, I had ready access to means. Um, mm. You know, so that was a real serious concern. Uh, I had suicidal ideations and thoughts throughout months and months of my journey and there was uh, yeah two separate occasions through 2015 where I thought today is the day that this is what's going to happen and so when you went to seek some help uh, how did did you then in turn communicate this to your employer to SAPOL and and what what happened yeah so 2015 became an absolute train wreck for me I went massively off the rails and it was impacting my home life first and foremost. Um, I'd left my family uh, for a period of time, uh, and then a lot of the, a lot of that, um, that ideas of acting nothing mattered and acting without consequence flowed into work. Um, I ended up involved in a um, a scenario which I had inflicted on myself of taking, initially took lawful possession of a baseball bat, but then over the following weeks I didn't follow procedures of booking it into property and that sort of thing and then there was a point where I made a foolish decision to keep this bat despite the fact that it wasn't mine. From a crime scene you mean or something? Yeah so it was just a a relatively routine stop, um, a a pretty basic disturbance report uh, and we took possession of it. She wasn't necessarily committing an offence that we could prove at the time but we knew that you know, to be catching a bus at 10 o'clock at night in the neighbourhood that she was in possession of a baseball bat. You know, you didn't have to be a detective to know that something could possibly go wrong uh, with that scenario. So our intention initially was to just put the bat into a vehicle that was nearby. But when we couldn't locate that, went back to the office and it floated around in the office. Again, purely because it was uh, cutting corners for, on my behalf. Um, mm-hmm. I was trying to be more time efficient, if nothing else, and thought we'll just get it back to her later as she was involved in a, sort of an ongoing investigation that we had. Um, but yeah, it was just one of those really, really dumb decisions of just, nah, we'll, we'll keep it. I guess like you might find a football in the, you know, the backyard or there's lots of reports of um, you know, tools that may be found that just end up in a toolbox for, you know what I mean? Like there's it's yeah. sort of a culture that exists there and, it, and it's not through intent, you know, bad people doing bad things. It's um, more often than not, it's, you know, good people just trying to cut corners. Um, and it's just not right. You know, it's still not right. So they, that resulted in one of my team members 
um, taking some of his concerns to the internal investigations process and on the 7th of August, so a few days after, uh, I was arrested by anti-corruption branch and charged with aggravated theft. So that was in fact the second day that I thought today's the day that I'll take my life because I had just been stripped of my identity. And so you were then uh, terminated from SAPOL and then what, what did you do? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the investigation went on for a few months. Uh, as a result of that, um, I was, like I mentioned before, and that idea of being stripped of identity, I was, I was, the biggest thing for me at that time was my bail conditions and my suspension from SAPOL required that I wasn't allowed to speak to anybody from, you know, from my team, certainly, but I had to have quite, be quite careful in my communication with other colleagues. And at that point, having been in the job for nine and a half years, I didn't have anybody outside of the police. So through that process, they had completely isolated me. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think because I still had such a strong value and pride in the uniform and that now I had disgraced that, there was still this sense of um, letting down all of my family in in blue mm. that I had now disgraced the uniform in a in a public way um, you know it, it made the news and, and all that sort of stuff again rightfully so I had done the wrong thing um, you know many people I think outside of the police argue that it's such a, a trivial offense but you know again that's just their perception I think police officers should be held in a higher regard and to make decisions like that's not acceptable for the public it's should therefore certainly be no way acceptable for police. So, uh, so you were then isolated. You were mm-hmm. you were still separated from your family at that point. Uh, my wife and I were working through a lot of our issues at home at that point. So, um, she is the probably the main reason why I'm still alive today. And I think that her strength. She's a lot stronger than me. People like to talk to me about this story, but uh, she's the the quiet sort of foundation to to all of this. Um, We were working through a lot of our stuff and I think that was probably a main cause for my decision to to want to get better, to, you know, to couldn't just live, I was only 32, I think, at the time and just thought there's no way I'm doing, you know, 60 more years of this. Because this is in 2015, right? This is August, Mm September-ish, 2015. This is before... In 2000, um, sorry, this is after you've been diagnosed with PTSD depression. Yep. What was the role of Alira? And obviously, you explained how important that was. Mm. But how, how did through that year, mm. when you were sort of going, as you called it, off the rails mm. a little bit with your behaviour, and um, t- tell me about the importance of her and and what she, the role that she played, and and was she educated in some way, or, or was she seeking? a way to be the role of carer or support person for you actively, or was it something that was just, just came to her because she wanted to help? Um, You know, again, really good question and probably one best asked of her, but uh, my interpretation of that is, I think it was probably two pronged. She was forced into this position. She had all of a sudden a husband who was a mess and was not the same person that she had married and the same person that she had fallen in love with but thankfully she still saw some glimmer of that person still existing and I think that ultimately for her it just came down to her fighting to get me back 
Um, I, again, I gave her many, many reasons to abandon me and uh, like walk away from our relationship and she could have easily had done that you know with her head held quite high and with a lot of support from society and from her wider community uh, she chose to go against a lot of well probably even a lot of those recommendations from people who are important in her life to say just get rid of him you know he's a, he's a mess and he's only going to cause more damage uh, but she she just fought she just yeah super strong so she didn't seek help. She wasn't getting any, uh, didn't do a course or anything on this. This is just something that just, she just said, listen, I'm committed. I'm going to stick this out and I'm here to support you, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's it. Uh, didn't, I mean, I think she's got, she does have three sisters and they no doubt would have supported her through this process. Uh, you know, her parents as well, I'm sure mm. would have supported her through that. My family uh, were certainly offering her support as well, but yeah, no courses, no formal education, just mm. sheer will and determination, and that um, that commitment and and fight for the you know that there was still something there worth fighting for. If we fast forward a few years to today, do you feel like there is uh, better organisations or better opportunities for people to reach out from a carer's point of view to seek help to see what they can do to in fact help uh, and support someone going through a, a mental health uh, or mental ill health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. I don't really know how best to answer that. Um, only to say that I think society in general is now starting to have quite open dialogue on many different platforms and, and processes around what it's like for people struggling with mental illness. And I think in a sense that that does then reach those that are in the carer's capacity. I've, I've often said to my wife that she should be coming to these events and, and speaking at these places as well to, to really give some insight. And I've got two really close friends as well who were instrumental through that uh, journey for me as well. And I think for them, they are both still in the police. Again, they hadn't done any courses. They hadn't done any, uh, saw any additional education in this space. They, again, just saw that there was value still in me. They believed that I was still there and they just, yeah, came into that darkness with me and walked side by side. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's been, been huge. The role of, of active listening, like, I mean, because people going through a, a mental health challenge that can be in a, a dark spot, I guess, as, you, as you've said, but people need to be willing to be able to sit there and say, well, see the signs, I guess, as well, and then actively sort of take a role and helping and even asking, probing, asking the questions to be there for people going through that. Uh, do you think that that um, with mental health first aid and these other things that are out there, do you feel like that, that uh, the awareness but also the sensitivity is there from the other side of it? So from people actively wanting to say, hey, something's not right with Matt. Yeah. Matt, are you okay? Yeah, and again, interesting because yeah, as an are you okay ambassador, you've kind of ticked a few of the steps there as well. Um, those act those courses you know the mental health first aid and and anything else there's, there's others that i'm aware of now as well and emotional cpr is another one of those that i'm now exploring and, and looking into all of that stuff is going to help in some way what i from my own experience have found is that people's biggest barrier is what they do or how they ask how much they push that question and then what if someone's not struggling there is a concern around well i'm not an expert i'm not a counselor i'm not a psychologist and this sort of thing but uh, the message that I push around that is you don't have to be. You know, this idea of active listening is is that. Like, it's just holding space for another person just to share what's going on for them. For many people, 
they might not need a counsellor or a psychologist. They might just need to just share what's going on for them. It, it could be something as simple as the debrief in the patrol car or the, you know, the ambulance after a, a particularly you know, ordinary job where you are honestly saying, like, you know, how is that for you? I could, you know, I could see that you were struggling a bit there. What's going on? It, it is that, you know, trusting the signs. We're going to be the best people to be able to speak to our colleagues and our friends and family members uh, because we'll know what normal looks like like our interpretation of their normal. So we'll know when we can ask those questions. That's really interesting. And then so, so from the active listening side, if we, and I 100% agree with what you've said, and I think you're right, I think it's getting, getting a lot better. And I think people just need to take time to tune out and say, hang on, enough about me for a minute. Uh, let's, let's, you know, seek, because today we're so distracted, aren't we, with things going on and we've got so many messages getting thrown at us each day with phones and computers and, um, that it just becomes you almost become a little bit numb to some of the conversations around you and the realness mm. of the people around you and we get busy that we don't actually engage in real conversations which I guess is part of the work that you're doing with mm-hmm. Are You OK? which is, which is really, really good tell me about self-stigma what do, you, what do you think, how do you think that's going where do you think we are with that and, and how do you think it's going to go in the next few years yeah, so I think that um the results that Beyond Blue's research just did uh, last year, they, they published their statistics. They, they showed that self-stigma was a real, like a real, a real thing. Um, you know, there was a talk that I think 75%, and I don't have the results directly in front of me, but about three quarters of the people were quite happy to support someone else. Um, and in fact, I think there was only about 1% of the participants thought that the person who was diagnosed with a mental health condition was responsible in some way had to own that so it seems like there's a willingness for others to support other people but then two-thirds of the participants who were diagnosed with a mental health condition felt as though they couldn't put their hand up and say that they were struggling for fear still of that perceived weakness adverse career effects you know and and i guess a a load of other personal reasons self-stigma i think is only going to be broken down by having conversations like this having this there's other people like me I'm I'm not this you know special set of circumstances there's lots of people out there lots of service people who are happy to chat might not necessarily be in a public forum but that are prepared to come in and and talk to small groups large groups of people or even just one-on-one but it's about getting that message out there to say if you are struggling with a mental health condition and you are in the emergency services there is a very strong chance that the person you're going to tell is going to be extremely supportive of you. And it's, it's trying to overcome that barrier of that perceived weakness that I'm struggling, I'm not coping so well. And if that is done early in the stages of, like I was saying, just witnessing one particular event or maybe it's a week long of, of events, but often they can be spoken through over a coffee and to the person who's listening, this idea of active listening, and again, I, I challenge listeners to go into a conversation and listen without the intent of having to respond. I think there's this often an idea that we have to come up with a solution for someone. But if you actually listen to them with no intention of actually responding to what it is that they have to say, the conversation becomes a lot more real and a lot more authentic far quicker. So self-stigma will be overcome in time purely by having more and more of these conversations. When I look through um, the three parts of your of your learnings that you're going to be 
giving to people during your presentation, you talk about the process of self-analysis as mm-hmm. being up there, like, I, am I really okay? Is that is that what is that an internal process that you go through? And do you have any quick um, sort of reflection on that? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, stepping into the role as a police officer, I was seeking external validation of purpose and identity. So then I had wrapped up all of my identity in the little black badge with a silver, you know, symbol on it. That so when they took that from me, I felt as though I was nothing. The, the self-awareness and the self-analysis process really is that what is important to me. Um, you know, who do I want to be? And for me, that was what kind of man do I want to be from today moving forward? Forget that like, the past won't define me, my roles won't define me, but who do I just want to be? What values do I hold core to me? And how am I acting in those with my family, with my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my daughter? Uh, you know, the way that I behave and how I communicate with people on a day-to-day basis really set up this process then of establishing my identity and then understanding that the role that we serve, albeit, is extremely valuable and there is a great sense of service that comes with being a first responder emergency services personnel, paid, voluntary, uh, you know, whatever, even if it's just on the day someone wanting to get involved and, and help someone else out, there is a huge sense of value and, and sense of service that comes with that. But that's not all that we are. You know, there are still so many other roles. I'm still a husband, I'm still a father, I'm, you know, I'm still a you know, grandson, um, I'm still a friend. There's, there's all of that. Policing just is one piece of the puzzle. Um, so it doesn't make up everything. It's really interesting that you bring that up, that the, you know, the identity crisis, as you call it, and the challenging of your core values. I mean, this is something that, you, that anyone can do at any point, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they don't need to do it at a time where they're feeling, you know, uh, whether they're going through some sort of depression yep. uh, symptoms or something like that. This is something at any point people can sit there and say, well, hang on, what am I doing? Let's not get too wrapped up with, you know, with my job or with yep. this title or with this. Because, I mean, it's it, like you say, the label becomes the experience. And when you feel like you lose that identity, yep. all of a sudden you lose yourself. And that's when, you know, people feel like they um, they venture down the path. Mm-hmm. Um where they where they start feeling you know um, mental ill health I guess yeah. the symptoms of that so uh, so I guess that's really important as as part of the process if you if you're experiencing that but also just equally important with people who who believe that they are mentally healthy yeah. can still look at this and say well hang on what are my core values and yeah. where do I sit and does this serve mm-hmm. me or not do you agree with that absolutely I I call it now just adjusting the compass okay. you know it's not about waiting till you're in crisis to have yes. this reevaluation. Uh, you know, I guess it's probably similar to some people review their financial budgets at tax time. Like it's, it's one of those things that can be done any day, any time. Yeah. And, and it's not going to necessarily be a really quick and easy process. And sometimes it can be really confrontational as well to mm-hmm. have that inner reflection to say, why, what am I actually doing? And am I doing it the way that I want to be doing? Am I living life? for my own purpose. Like, what am I trying to achieve here? Um, yeah, so I think that it's something that anybody can do. And just a quick side on that, I guess uh, with my personal experience with businesses and stuff, I, I went through a similar thing. I mean, I, I, wasn't through, I wasn't going through a mental health challenge at that point, but, uh, but I, I sort of came to a, a crossroad and I was like, well, where am I going with what, I, what's the outcome mm. that I really want? Mm. And, and what's important to me? And not only was it important for me to do this personally, but I felt like with my wife of, you know, currently 16 years, Mm -hmm. 
it was actually equally important, more important to sit down with her and say, well, hang on, we're yeah. on this journey together. Yeah. The identity, because I think in relationships sometimes too, you can also lose that identity Absolutely. as well, especially with kids when they get older and then they leave and then you get all this time together mm-hmm. uh, and you're like, well, we don't really have anything in common anymore. But yeah. I think the importance of aligning that and getting that um, that intentional outcome and those core values together so you're on the same team and you're going the same direction is really important in any relationship Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. I think that the someone was telling me when I was having um, when my wife and I were going through our difficult times is that uh, I wasn't allowed to look for my own to serve my own needs anymore because we had obviously committed to this marriage and and in many ways I agree with that however I think that there still needs to be two individuals that actively choose and are willing to come together uh, to try to achieve something that's greater than just themselves so yes we're married and my wife now, like her level of importance in my life, is drastically like leveled up. And there are times where I might sacrifice some of my needs and wants for that, but it's we can still be open about that. We can still have an open dialogue about, okay, I'm going to compromise on this um, so that you might be able to meet your needs and wants on this occasion. But individual identity, even in a relationship, is still extremely important. Mm. Otherwise, it's... You know, it's destined for at some point, you know, those expectations will go unmet for such a long time that the resentment will build and you'll be, it, it's, it's all over. 100%. Uh, couldn't agree more. And, uh, and it's, it's good to just get that, uh, that point of relevance as well to the, to the relationships because I think that's a really important part of it mm-hmm. as well. So then the second part you, you say back on your learnings is um, it's okay not to be okay. Mm-hmm. So about the perception of fear and weakness, um, and the identity being completely connected to your job. Absolutely. I think it's okay to be unwell. It's okay if, if someone had a sitting in the station, for example, and they were clearly showing signs of having the flu, we would, we would tell them, go home, we don't want to get everybody else sick, that sort of stuff. And, and it would be okay. Like, you know, I, you know Matt's off, he's, he's un, just got the flu at the moment. That seems to be acceptable. It is also acceptable to say, I'm not in a good like, space for my health, so I'm going to go do something for my self-care. It's really important that there is that second stage because I guess, you know, from could be a tendency then for people to not go get better. You can take some time off, but you're going to have to come back to work. Just like I go away, I'll get over the flu and I come back to work and I can deliver. I think most people want to be able to operating at 100%, particularly in a first responder's role. That was my experience because you want to be able to give so much to the community, also to the team. You want to be a valuable team member. This perception of perceived weakness is when you can't step up and do and commit all of yourself is where I think a lot of that self-stigma comes from. So it is okay to not be okay and then go get some self-care, like do things for self-care. That could be a counsellor and psychologist in, in those more extreme cases, but it might be for some people, they, they completely tune out, they disengage with the phone, they might go sit at the beach, they might go get a coffee, they might you know, hang out with some friends. Whatever that is for the individual, there's actually nothing wrong with just trying to recharge your batteries. And do you, what sort of things do you do for that to tune out? Do you do meditation? Do you monitor your sleep? Are you, are you physically active? Obviously, you look like a yeah. fit guy, but tell me about some of the stuff that you're doing. Yeah, so like all of that. Okay. Because I, I didn't want to take medication 
through through my journey and you know there's probably times where maybe I should have and I may have curbed some of the more extreme behavior however that for me wasn't um, something that I wanted to do what I did notice though and certainly again through the help of my wife was that if I didn't engage in meaningful conversations with with good uh, role models and, and good men in the community as well but also didn't do something that was physical in nature that my mental health would deteriorate quite rapidly so uh, I make a commitment to um, check in with myself quite regularly um, around how I'm traveling physically intellectually emotionally spiritually and then also what I'm doing about my self-care and that's something that I do almost on a you know really on a daily sometimes weekly basis and I can then pick where I'm I guess struggling and I then have a, a number of different strategies from those things meditation I do monitor my sleep also obviously you know be careful of my alcohol intake um, make sure that I'm doing something physical there's, there's a stack of different things that I can do yeah Okay, and then the third part you say is obviously encouraging action. So discussion and the role of peer support. Mm -hmm. uh, before this conversation, we obviously spoke about briefly, but I mean, the importance of peer workers, peer support workers out there that have been through mm -hmm. what emergency... Emergency services play such a critical role yeah. in, in the community uh, that when it comes to a, a point, uh, and you can, you're better off to talk about this mm -hmm. than me, but... Um, the qualification of them and the and the uh, I guess the resonation that, so the, that they resonate more with people mm -hmm. when they um, when they're going through an experience. Do you think how much is it that you think they want to hear from someone that's a qualified psychiatrist, mm -hmm. psychologist, versus someone that's been through it in the industry that you've been in yeah. and can talk to you on that level? How important is that, and how do you see that role um, impacting the future of emergency services? Yeah, that, that is a really important message that I share as well around that action. And, and I think for, um, I found in my experience that being in the police, and again, I can't speak for the other emergency services, but there was a real issue around trust and credibility. So when we did have a, an external agency or an educator or a psychologist that would want to speak with us about uh, mental health issues, in, for example, there was a, I felt anyway, a disconnect because they hadn't walked the journey that we we did and so when we might share a particular story and for us that you know that might have just been a, a regular Tuesday and they're saying you know that is a considered an extremely traumatic event but you thought well you can't really put that into perspective because you don't know what it is that we do having someone who's been in in the job and I think if I had maybe someone like me and many others like me but someone like me back when I was struggling to say I've done my time and I know what it's like to be in the police and I know what it's like to be in I guess emergency services in a broader sense so I can understand all of the other stuff that goes into that um, and then also using my story of how I could be in such a really strong position I, I was confident I was destined for great things I, I had mapped out my career I would be a commissioned officer my goal was to be an LSA commander uh, by the end of my career and I think that I was on track for that, but yet now I, you know, I, I have a con criminal conviction from the Adelaide Magistrates Court. I'm a convicted ex-cop, if you're gonna put a label on it, which I think has got, a, you know, it's such a stark contrast to mm. where I started on that journey. So the importance of having someone appear with some lived experience that is able to walk side by side and not give the answers and say, this is what you should do, or this is how you should 
like fix yourself, but just sit and listen and offer some suggestions, some things might not work for everybody. The, the, the stuff that worked for me might not be for everybody. I own my stuff. I've had to go through a process of you know, elimination in many ways. But if I can offer up some different suggestions to people, it might stop them from going down the same path as me because we're still losing emergency services workers. You know, we're still losing cops. Like, they're still taking their life out there. Mm. You know, it's, it's crazy. We're more than twice as likely to be diagnosed with a mental health condition than the general population. You know, it's very real. And we, we do need more people like myself just available to talk to people. 100% mate and the stuff that you're doing uh, where you're getting up in front of people and you're going out and actively seeking people to have these real conversations is uh, is real leadership because uh, this is what the industry needs this is what uh, we need people like you to drive this and peer workers play such an important role I know that a few weeks ago I was having a chat to James and Aaron who were in uh, Energy Australia and they were lived experience as well within they were obviously electricians and um, and they uh, they had uh, they had a, an experience of mental health and suicidal thoughts and, and attempts and and they actually have now become a role within Energy Australia as ambassadors and going around and talking to groups of people as purely as that's that's a role what they're doing and and they're taking an active approach towards doing that. Do you see South Saipol uh, having the same sort of uh, um, network or do, you th- or do you think that's a good idea or do you think there'll be a way off that? I would love to see that happen. I w- and I think that it's a, we're starting to step in that direction. Um, you know, the fact that I'm now being invited by you know, different, different police officers to come and talk to groups and, and commissioned officers that I didn't have anything to do with when I was in the job. Uh, are now asking me to come and speak at training days, for example, around, like, again, my story and, and offering up some suggestion to that. But my, my full-time role now in, in Adelaide is I am a lived experience mentor. I, I use, I think, a lot of the lessons that I have learnt, but just my experience. I now work and support people in the community, not just emergency services, but just people in the community who are living with different complex mental health conditions. It doesn't mean that I have, again, have all the answers, but it just means that I have an understanding of the potentially what they're going through and a readiness and a willingness to stand side by side with them in that space and to walk that path. Um, like I said, everybody will experience this, this journey in a different way. Mine's not to say that it's, it's worse or better than anybody else's, but it's just to say, yeah, I've, I've experienced my own stuff mm-hmm. and how can we now best work through this i would love to see safe i'll have a a base of core mentors i'd love to have um no i see it in in my dream if you like would be to have someone again like myself or others who are in more of like a i guess a crisis response who can attend large-scale critical incidents where trauma may be exposed in a very significant very real way to the emergency services involved and then will be available at a debrief and, and to be able to break through those barriers around trust and credibility to say, yeah, I was a, I was a cop once. Mm. I know what it's like to be in that role. And here's also some, some strategies that we can actually look at dealing with the trauma that you've just experienced so that this doesn't impact you further later on down the, down the way. We need police, we need ambos, we need fireys, we need military. They will experience trauma as a result of those roles. It's a given. We can have well-adjusted, highly functioning, um, you know, a, 
police officers, for example, with a majority of them in a really good, strong position mentally? We're obviously not there yet, but we uh, certainly feel like we're on a better journey than we were a few years ago, certainly since you were terminated from your role. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel like, say, Paul, are becoming better, more active, more aware of this? Uh, and, and are you hopeful, certainly, that that will take place, that sort of structure in the coming years? I'll always say that I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'll always say that because that's just how I live my life now is, is always full of hope. I think that, like, you're right, we have a long way to go. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and be anti-SAPOL or anti-emergency services either. So I've, I'll obviously, be, you know, be careful how I respond because I'm not in, I'm not having those meetings in those, you know, roundtable conference rooms. I, I often say that I wonder how the outcome would have gone with my scenario if it was to occur today. I'd like to think that maybe there was be a different approach. I'd like to think that maybe the question would be asked of how how is it that this happened and why did you feel as though you couldn't put your hand up to say you weren't coping rather than those being statements made to me at the time of my termination basically mm. i guess to suggest that there is enough in place and that this is on the individual there's certainly an individual responsibility it mm. is this it has to be a two-pronged approach yes individuals have to be doing things themselves to actively work through this stuff but organizations need to be doing a hell of a lot more than what's currently being done. And it won't happen overnight, but we are hoping that we do those small steps, the incremental steps yep. that uh, take us closer to that outcome. As we round for home, mm -hmm. mate, if we go to some other questions, a bit different, mm -hmm. what's uh, an inspiring book you could recommend for listeners, whether it's professional, motivational, mm -hmm. inspirational? Have you got any? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just listening to Simon Sinek's Infinite Game at the moment, and I think that for me, that's that's starting to put a bit of perspective on on life in general. Like there is no winner in this, that, um, and that for me is about comes back to that self awareness and identity. That there's certain benchmarks throughout life that we can align ourselves to, but at the end of the day, when we leave this earth, no one's going to say like, yeah, he won. You know, so mm -hmm. it really is about trying to make sure that we're just living on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really good. And it, as far as videos go, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Eric Thomas. Um, mm. He was, some of his videos were quite powerful and quite instrumental in breaking through a lot of the, like the emotional barriers that I had during 2015. And um, yeah, I was fortunate to see him live at an event and he's, sort of, he's amazing. E.T., yeah. E.T., mate. He's yeah. like, he's about to, they draw you at four, 5 a.m. in the morning and you're yeah. out in the surf and he's yeah. holding your head down. How bad do you want yeah. it, son? <laughs> How bad do you want yeah. it? Yeah, he's, he's, he's really good. Um, and there's also, obviously, the stuff by um, the Echelon front guys, you know, Jocko Willink Jocko and Willink. Babin. And, um, mate, you know, you know, they, they, Extreme Leadership and that other book he's just bought yeah. out as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it was Extreme Ownership and Dichotomy of Leadership. That's as well. it, yeah. Very, very powerful books and I think it come from a place of uh, trust and credibility and mm. relatedness to some extent I mean yeah those guys are powerful I mean Jocko's doing a workshop in Sydney coming mm. up in December um, I was going to go to that but I have a conference mm. on at the time but I definitely signed up to Simon Senek. he's actually yep. coming out next year which I signed yep. up to his thing in Sydney next year so I'm going to go to that one cool yeah that'd be good I, <laughs> I was planning with the idea of Echelon front one and I did see Simon and my <laughs> wife and I are, are talking about whether we go to the one in Melbourne so Mate, good on you. And uh, one, one more question, actually. Who's been an inspirational source for you? Wow, there's, there's been so many. I think at the, like my wife has been a huge inspirational source of uh, power and strength, resilience, um, but being able to do it in such a, like a graceful, elegant way um, throughout my journey. Um, 
I think uh, my my dad as well would be another one. Um, so the night before I flew out here, he was admitted to ICU with um, you know some health complications. He's stable now, but um, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, but I've, I've said that I maintain I was always getting on the plane to come, regardless of the outcome, because he's a he's a real firm believer in like what I'm trying to do around uh, breaking down that stigma and changing the culture of mental health conditions in emergency services and in the broader community. So uh, I think that if he can fight through what he just did, then I'm sure I can get through sharing my story to, to 300 people here. Well, man, that's inspirational. You've been inspirational to talk with today. I think the work you're doing in the emergency services uh, sector around mental health and, and organisational change and the culture change around being more aware of these conversations is really, really critical. And we need more and more people like you out there doing this. And so I'm thrilled that you're here, uh, thrilled that you've obviously been able to share your time with us. Uh, also, I know that you do, you're a speaker, you do counselling one-on-one, you do workshops. Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so you'll find me on all of the socials, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, also at mattnewlands.com.au, starting to step into this space in many different capacities. So, yeah. Perfect. Well, mate, thanks very much again for coming to share your, your journey with us. Uh, and I wish you all the best. Uh, your wife, Alira, your daughter, Grace, she must be about eight now, is she? She is, yep. Grade two, is that? Uh, she is three, stepping into year four next year. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, mate, all the best with that, and uh, and it's it's been really good to share your story with our listeners, and I appreciate your your um, your insights. Excellent, thank you very much for having me. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.